I want you to take a second. I want you to think of a hero to you. Somebody that you at some point or still do wanted to become. It can be silly or it can be real. It could be Superman or Mother Teresa. I don't know who it is for you. A parent or a grandparent or a mentor. Take a second and think of somebody that was a mentor or hero to you that you wanted to become like them. Did you think of your person? Put your hand up if you got somebody. Okay, wonderful. Now, as you're thinking of that person, we don't have time to go person by person today, but I wonder if you thought of anything negative about them. I wonder if it was all positive. I wonder if you thought of all of just the amazing ways and how they were, and you just thought about all the good things about them. Because something about that is when we think of our heroes, we just see all of the good things about them, and we rarely think of their flaws. But people are people, and we all have flaws. I'm going to tell you about one of my heroes, my 15, 16-year-old self, my hero. When I, would, uh, when I was a teenager, I would go away to the summer camp, and I would volunteer as a farmhand. And I would work, and I would go and go into the fields, and they taught us how to just basic construction stuff. We really, like, it was, like, really just grunt work. I mean, I literally would just go into the field, and they would give us a tractor and say, here's how you drive it and go pick up rocks out of the field. It was that kind of like fun, just building character experience kind of thing. We'd go away for summer and pick rocks out of the field. But I'd also have a good time where you would have opportunity to go play sports and go jump in the water hole off of mountains and stuff like that. It was just great times. But my boss was Adam Eichhorn. And in my eyes, Adam Eichhorn was a god among men. Six foot three, tall, blonde, blue-eyed. He could work on trucks. He was great ultimate frisbee. Everybody thought he was funny. I just thought Adam Eichhorn was amazing. Adam Eichhorn taught me how to use euphemisms, how to cuss in church and not say real bad words. Adam Eichhorn was my idol, the guy that I wanted to be like my 15 and 16-year-old self. So as I was going along and just growing up, I started just making poor decisions in my life. Started making habitual sin and things that I was just getting involved in that I didn't want to be a part of, but I found myself getting, being a part of them. And so one summer, I went to my hero, and I said, Adam, here's the areas I'm struggling with. Can you help me? Because in my mind, my hero would be the one that would be able to get me out of those things. He'd surely have a way to be able to conquer these areas in my life that I need help with. And can you imagine my surprise and shock when Adam told me that he had struggled with the exact same issues. And not only that, he currently was working through those exact same issues. Adam Eichhorn did not live up to the expectation that I put on him. Because the reality is, is that Adam, like me, and like Abraham, was a man. He was just a man, and he was a flawed person, working out and figuring out his faith journey as he went, just like all of us do. We're in a series, as you might remember, Our Father Abraham. And we're looking at the life of Abraham and we're learning lessons from his life. And this man is just an incredible man of faith. There's so many things that he did well. He held nothing back from God, including family. He contended with God in prayer over the salvation of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was the guy that had angels over for Giros. I mean, this guy was incredible. This guy was incredible. He was called a friend of God, the forerunner of our faith, which means that his faith can be our faith. 
that how he walked, we can walk. The relationship he had with God that he modeled for us, we can also have with God. But the interesting thing is, is that Abraham's story doesn't start real well. If you remember the last sermon, we talked about how he was called out of Ur, the city of Ur, and immediately got stuck in Haran. And he got sidetracked for a couple of years. But then he heard the call of God again, and he followed God in faith again. And then we're going to go today's sermon. Immediately, he messes up major big time. And so we realize that Abraham was not a perfect person. He did not exhibit perfect faith. But for us who are trying to figure out this walk in the way of Jesus, it actually is more relatable because we all, I would assume, have had opportunities in our life where we've failed. We've all had opportunities in our life where we fell short of what we knew was right. And Abraham models that for us. So borrowing the words from Chuck Swindoll today, today's sermon is called, When the Faithful Fail. When the Faithful Fail. If you turn in your Bible to Genesis 12, we're going to be here most of the day. So Genesis chapter 12, I'm reading out of the NLT today. And so I'm just going to summarize really quick. Last week we got, or two weeks ago, we got up to verse 4. I'm going to summarize verse 5 through 9. Abraham feel, hears the call from God, and he follows him, and he leaves Haran, and he makes his way to the promised land of Canaan. And he gets to Canaan. I think we actually have a map, if we can throw that up. He makes his way to Canaan, and he starts traveling around all of these sacred places of worship. And so if you see on this map, the yellow is, uh, the yellow is Ur, and he traveled all the way north to the pink, which is Iran. And then he came down to this red section, which is this whole region is Canaan. And he started going around to all these different towns, and he started making his way as a nomad. And he started hitting all these major centers of life and worship and creating altars of communion and intimacy with God. So Abraham makes his way to the promised land. And he has these wonderful moments of conversation and speaking with God. And God's laying out all the promises. You're going to bless all these nations and have more kids than you can ever count. And he's having all these good things with God. But then something happens. So we're going to pick up, the ver we're going to pick up our text in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abraham to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. Abraham leaves Haran, leaves Ur, leaves everything he knows, follows God in faith into the unknown, gets to the land of promise, is traveling around, creating altars and sacred places of worship, communing and talking with God, but then he experiences a trial. But then he experiences a famine. And something's very interesting to me here is that to me, with all of that in mind, there seems to be something missing from the text here. To me, I say, Abraham... Where was your conversation with God? Where is the prayer that says, Lord, the promised land isn't looking so promising right now. Lord, the land that you called me to isn't enough. Lord, my, my cattle, my sheep, they need water. My, kid, my, my wife and my servants, they, they need food. Lord, this is really hard. What am I supposed to do? Because Abraham's just coming out of a season of traveling all around that Canaan area, that promised land, creating altars and places of communion and conversation with God. Everything's going well, but then something hard happens to him. And we realize that Abraham is just a person. Abraham is just a man, even though he's the forefather of our faith. 
even though he does tremendous things through God's grace, he's just a man that's susceptible to failure. So instead of an invitation for God to speak into the situation, Lord, there's a famine going on. This is really hard right now. It's really hard to be the person you're calling to. It's really hard to have faith you're going to come through. What am I supposed to do? Abraham does something that starts to show up a couple times in his story. He tries to take the situation into his own hands. And so what Abraham does is he leaves the land, the promised land, and he travels south to Egypt. And so Abraham reacts to the circumstances, and he tries to figure out how to figure out life on his own. This couldn't possibly be what God was promising me. He, he said, come here. This couldn't possibly be the promised land. I, I just got to, I'll go figure it out myself. I hear, there's, I hear there's help. Maybe we'll just go for a little bit. We'll come back, but we're going to leave. Abraham, where's the conversation? Where's the ask? Where's the plea? Where's the... Uh, invitation to invite God into the situation. And maybe you're thinking I'm making too big of a deal of this right now. Maybe you're like, it's not that big of a deal, Josh. Like, he's just going to go to Egypt, and then he's going to go back to Canaan. It's not that big of a deal. It's not even, could you even classify this as a sin, as a shortcoming? But I'll tell you, you probably know this from your life, I certainly know this from mine, is that when you start giving yourself a little bit of moral leeway, bigger tumbles come down the road. And we're going to see that exact thing happen with Abram. Is that he makes, gives himself a little bit of moral leeway, a little bit of a lack of faith, a little bit of trust in himself, a little bit of control through his own decisions. And we see that things are going to start tumbling out of control for Abraham very quickly. Verse 11, as he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, immediately we see that Abram didn't think it all the way through. As he's approaching the border, he realized that he's walking next to a real hottie. And he realizes that this is going to cause him some trouble. Have you ever made a snap minute decision? Have you ever done something that you knew wasn't necessarily, like, it's in the gray area. Is that wrong? Is that right? And then you realize that immediately you have to make another decision that's hard. And another trial comes up. It was not God that put that trial in your life. It was you. It was me. That thing that I decided to do created a bigger problem for myself. Sometimes you're like, God, where are you? God didn't do that to you. I did that to myself. I put myself in this place. And we see Abram here. As he's approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, he realizes very quickly that more obstacles are about to happen to himself. He realizes, he starts thinking through anxiety, he starts thinking through some worry, he starts feeling some of these things about what's about to happen to me. And he realizes, ironically, the, the decision that he made to give life might take his life. Let's continue their text. Verse 11, as he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abraham said to his wife Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, let's kill him, then we can have her. So please, just tell them you are my sister, then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Okay, this is a little white lie for Abram. It's a little confusing in Old Testament, ancient times, but this is not just, uh, this, this is not uh, just Bible. 
It was very common for people in that time to keep it within the family literally, okay? It was very common to marry your half-sisters or brothers or whatever and to keep those family units strong. And in Genesis 20, 12, we learn that Sarai is actually Abram's half-sister. And so can you actually hear and follow and think through, see how Abram's starting to make the dots here? It's not really a lie. It's actually true. I'm not actually doing anything wrong. And, you know, we're just one little group here. They're much stronger than us. And if if I make that lie, I could actually stay close and still stay as protector in Sarai's life. I won't be seen as an obstacle. Isn't it better that I'm alive and be able to protect her than killed and dead? Wouldn't it be better to just uh, try to orchestrate the situation than her being taken and raped or something even worse? You see Abram starting to make, make uh, leeway for himself, give himself more and more leash as he has to figure out the situation he put himself into. Abram thinks this is the best plan he can do. He remained tethered to her as her protector, but still not be seen as an obstacle to the people around him. And so you see that little decision to leave Canaan causes him to lie and causes him to bring his wife into it as well. Not only am I affected, but so is the people around me. And so it spins more and more and more out of control. What is happening? This is the man that we call the forerunner of our faith. This is the man that we point to that says this is the father of our faith, our father, Abraham. This is the example that we're trying to follow. Yes, because you see what Abram's doing right now is living his full humanity in front of everybody. Because we all experience this. Not, not trying to get rid of your wife or something, not lying about that and marrying your sister. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this internal struggle of dealing with your flesh and trying to listen to the spirit. Because the thing happened is that salvation, that very moment of salvation, life takes off and you, you have life, uh, eternal life. But at that exact same moment, you have a lifetime of working your faith out. Galatians says it this way. Galatians 5, uh, verse 16 through 17. It says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants you to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. As long as we maintain our physical bodies here on earth, every single day we will wake up with a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Every single day, Romans talks about it as the struggle of between doing the things I don't want to do and, and not doing the things I want to do. Like, I, I don't want to be that type of person. I don't want to fall into those old things. I don't want to act that way. I don't want to treat my wife like that. I don't want to talk to my kids like that. I don't whatever. But you have this internal battle every single day between what you know that the Spirit's calling you to do and what your body wants to do. And Abraham's experiencing that. He's experiencing this, this idea of he, he relied on old methods, old means of trying to control and protect himself in his own strength. 
Instead of an invitation, he reacts to the circumstances. You've probably been in a circumstance before or a trial before or a conversation before that instead of taking a breath and pausing and inviting God into it, you reacted to it. I don't know how many times me and Amy have had a conversation that was more of a fight that if I had just taken a second to pause and invite God into it instead of react to something, we wouldn't have had that conversation. If I had taken a second to say, God, I know that's not what she meant, or I know I'm actually just really tired right now, and I, I'm just easily offended right now, would you give me patience? Would you give me leeway? And instead, I just react in anger. I wonder if you can think of a time right now where this is a reality for you. A time where instead of inviting God into the situation, you reacted to your circumstances and tried to figure it out on your own. Try to figure things out in your own strength. Abraham's dealing with this. Galatians talks about this, how we have this internal battle. We're fighting the flesh inside of us and trying to allow the spirit to do what it wants to do in us, to create the person that it knows that we can be. So let the Holy Spirit do his work in you. It's really a good control issue. Let the Spirit, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. All the way back in the, at the very beginning, when we go back to the Garden of Adam and Eve, it really is a control issue. Are you going to trust me, God, or are you going to try to control your life? Let me guide you. Sometimes, that is as simple as saying, God, what's next? Just vocalizing the fears and the frustrations and the things in your life. What would have happened if Abraham said, God, I am scared. I'm the protector of my house. I abandoned everything to follow you. I led my whole family. There's people relying on me. I'm a job. I, I, I'm a boss. I, I own a company. I have all these female and male servants. I have all of these responsibilities relying on me. What am I supposed to do? What if he had had that conversation? Instead, he took it upon himself to say, no, pack up everything. We're going to Egypt. I hear it's okay there. And immediately he has consequences because of that. So coming back to our text, I want to show you that Abram's fears were justified. Abram, what he was scared of was real. He wasn't being... Uh, crazy. He wasn't being uh, uh, thinking into things too hard. This was a real fear for him. Just hold on that picture for just a second, guys. Directions, Genesis 12, verse 14. It said, sure enough, when Abram arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarai's beauty. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarai was taken into the palace. So it went even beyond, though, what Abram was scared of. He thought it's just going to be local people, like they're going to be all fawning after my wife and stuff, but as her brother I can protect her. But it went way worse than he could have thought of. And so everybody, instead of trying to claim her for themselves, went to the top, to the king, and said, hey, there's a beautiful woman here, and she's available. You need to come and talk to her. And so actually I did a lot of digging this week, and I found, I found what historians and commentators think was an actual good representation of this moment of Abraham walking through the town with Sarai, an Egyptian singer for the first time. And can we put that up, please? Yep. <laughs> and there it is. Yeah. 
You can tell by the plaid that this was ancient Egypt. So here it is. Okay, please put that away. Some of you are like, what is happening? What's wrong with this church? They have memes and songs. Listen, this isn't every week, but it's summer, and I'm just feeling a little, I don't know, just got to get out. So let's finish our story, and then we're going to come back to the text. We're going to start in verse 15. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and so I was taken into his palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her, sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me, he demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them, and he sent Abram out of his country along with his wife and possessions. Really quick, I just want to zoom out again and recap everything that's happened in the last chapter. God has this call on Abram to leave Ur, which is seen as the city of sin or his origin story calling him out of his self into a relationship with God. And so Abram answers the call and he leaves, Haran, or he leaves Ur and he travels to Haran and he gets stuck, which is seen as a, a place of comfort. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how so easy to get stuck in comfort instead of stepping into the unknown. But God in his grace calls again and Abraham answers the call and in faith he makes it to the promised land. But he's hit with a trial, he's hit with a hardship, he's hit with a frustrating situation, something that causes fear in him. And so he goes to Egypt, which in the Bible, Egypt is always that metaphor for the old world, the worldly way of doing things. It's the place where God's people were known to be captive and uh, destroyed by sin. It's always this place of compromise, of taking your faith and compromising your faith before God. Will you do it the way the world says to do it? Or we will continue to follow God. And again and again you see this relationship when Moses is leading the people in Israel that they desire to go back to Egypt. And it's always along the lines of remember the strawberries, remember the leeks, remember when we could get fresh vegetables like cucumbers. And there's all these things of their flesh is wanting to go back because it's really hard right now. And so Abram had left the promised land and gone to a place of compromise. And we see all of these things that happen. And we're going to finish our time today with this. I just want to give you a couple heart lessons. Generalized truths out of this story that I was just, as I was sitting with it and studying it, that I felt came out of this text. And the very first one is this, is that sin starts small, but it has big effects for all. It starts small, but it doesn't just affect you. It will always affect the people around you. One commentator put it this way about Abram. He said his conduct was culpable and inconsistent with his character as a servant of God. It showed a reliance on worldly policy more than a trust in the promise. And he not only sinned himself, he tempted Sarai to sin also. Because of a small little white lie, Abram puts his wife in a compromised position. Strips her of the things that are protection, strips her of those marriage vows, and puts her in a compromised position before somebody else. Because of that small, one little decision of a white liar to go south to Egypt, Abram brings upon a plague upon Pharaoh's house. Sometimes we think porn, it just affects me, nobody knows. 
Sometimes we think, ah, you know, everybody else at the office is gossiping. I, I just don't want to see seem like that stick. I, I just want to join in. I didn't, I didn't really contribute. I just didn't stop it. Sometimes you're like, you know, I, I deserve this time to myself, and we're harsh with our family. Harsh with the people around us. We think, you know, I, I deserve this. Stop, stop pressing into my me time. And sometimes we get stuck in this place of thinking that sin, it just affects me. It's not going to go beyond me, but Abram's showing that sin always goes beyond just you. It affects the people around you. Because sin has this, it's sin's nature, is that it's never full. It's always hungry for more. One sin's not going to be enough. It's going to want more. The very nature of sin is that it's voracious, has a voracious appetite. You will never fill it. Which is why sin, when you start feeding it and giving it more and more, doesn't become satisfied. It gets worse and worse and more perverse. Because it has to change and manipulate and get worse because it will never be satisfied. And it's never happy just keeping it a personal thing. It wants to make it a communal thing. If it affects you, it wants to grab you to affect all the people around you. And that's the serpent's lie. At the very beginning of the garden, it says, will, he whispers lies into Adam and Eve's ears. Did God really say that? Will you really die? And they think, no. I want to do this for myself. And then generation after generation after generation is born with an inheritance of flesh and sin. But it's not just that one decision. It's everything we do affects you. It makes you a worse husband or a worse father or a mother. It makes you a worse employee. It invalidates your testimony before other people, making you a hypocrite. And the person that they thought was supposed to be a follower of Christ, it makes you the person a picture of anger and of hurt in the church. Sin goes much farther than just you. The next thing I want to point out in lesson two is that success does not mean that God's blessed or given you favor. Abram stops talking to God. He travels all the way down to Egypt. He creates a white lie. He gains things through dishonest means and practices. He basically prostitutes his wife out. And what happens to Abram? He's blessed. He's given sheep and camels and donkeys and male and female servants. He's given all of these things and it's easy to use our circumstances to validate a bad decision we made. Well, if God wasn't really behind this, would he have blessed this? If God was behind this, would he have allowed this to happen? If God wasn't behind this, he, he wouldn't have let me receive all of these good things. And it's easy to use our situations to speak truth unto God. It's easy to use circumstances to speak truth unto God and who he is. That just means that you played the game of the world. And there's a lot of things to be gained that way. There's a lot of things. They would always go back to Egypt because that was the place of the most modern way, the most normal way, the most current fashion. But it was always a reliance on self and doing it for yourself to promote yourself instead of faithfully trusting God. And so do we think, man, my circumstances are saying I'm blessed, so that justifies everything I've done to get here. Your sin goes 
well beyond yourself. Your circumstance does not mean that God's approving or favoring the way that what you did to get there. And three, everyone faces trials. It would be easy to justify it and say, I heard wrong from God. I got to the promised land. Now this famine's here. I didn't hear right. God's not blessing me. Let's leave. And he leaves the promise. But the thing is is that we will all suffer trials in our life. We will all have a famine at some point. I love it how Chuck Swindoll says this. He says, while God didn't cause the famine, he certainly used it as an instrument in the development of Abram's faith. He uses tests to reveal us to ourselves. A divine test usually exposes what might be called our default response to crisis. And for Abram, it was deception, lying. He fibbed to save his own skin. See, Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one to whom we are accountable. God knows you. He knows how your story ends. He knows how you tick. He knows the weaknesses you have in your heart. But it's so easy for us to not know ourselves. It's so, I'm really good at lying to myself. I'm really good at hiding my real true intentions and heart. But in a hard time, in a pressing, in a, in a circumstance where I'm stressed out and pressed down, my heart comes out. Not when I'm well-rested and, and uh, prepared for something, I can articulate my response. It's in that moment-to-moment situation where something happens, and I have a split second to decide, am I trusting God in this second, or am I going to rely on myself? And my heart is exposed. And as I was preparing for this message, this always kind of stinks how this works, is I'm just hypersensitive about all this stuff in my own life. And I saw all these situations this last week. This last week, I built a deck railing. I, I, ha- I know enough about construction stuff to do, uh, like, an okay job that's a little bit not good. Like, if you look down the railing, you're like, that's not straight, and that's not four inches, and why is this, why didn't you split the distance here just enough to get really frustrated? <laughs> Sydney, stop it. And so, and so I realized this week as I was going, I was like, man, Josh, why do you have so much anger in your heart right now? I was getting frustrated. I had a saw that wasn't working. I needed it to finish, it, finish this one little section almost done. And just all of these things were so quick for me to access. All of this anger and frustration was so quick for me to access under the surface. Trials expose us to ourselves. And we all are going to experience trial or famine at some point in our lives. And it exposes you to yourself. Sin is never just about you. It's a community thing. It wants to affect everybody in your life. Success doesn't mean, necessarily mean, that God's approving of your method or your way of life. And everyone faces trials. And every trial is an opportunity to expose yourself to yourself. And four, rebuke and correction can come from anywhere. You know what's so ironic about this whole story is that Abram the faithful, the forefather of our faith, the one that's a friend of God, is fearful of those that don't worship God, but the godless prove to be more faithful and morally upright than Abram. They don't murder him. They richly repay him for his wife. They think they're doing a good conscience. When they realize that they've wronged, they give them back. And they say, why would you do this to us? And the rebuke comes from the godless, the people that don't follow God, the people that are openly worshiping other, way, other gods and living lifestyles that, they, that we would say is not right. 
And the faithless proved to be more God-fearing than Abram. That kind of rebuke can sting and can be humiliating. But rebuke and correction can come from any source if you have the humility to receive it. It can come from any source. God, and there's one example where God uses us a donkey. He goes Narnia on a donkey and it starts talking. God uses a donkey. He certainly can use this Pharaoh to speak truth into Abram's life. Can you imagine the humiliation of Abram? God's chosen vessel to start building a, a civilization, a nation that's bent towards believing and trusting and following God. Can you imagine the the way that Abram was feeling as all of this was going down, the gut-wrenching knowledge of knowing that because of a lie, he compromised his wife, that when he's caught in it, that Pharaoh's more honorable than him in this moment? Can you imagine the deep sense of shame that was coming over him? I don't think that was a God thing. I don't think shame's from God. Then our natural souls, when are confronted with that sin part of ourselves and is brought to light, it's so easy to just start feeling like you're so inadequate. Does Abram receive it? Does he grow with it? The title of the sermon is When the Faithful Fail. But the question we're going to end with today is what happens when the faithful fail? What happens to Abram? What happens to his family? What happens to their life when they trust themselves and leave God? We're going to finish today with Genesis 1. 13, 1 through 4. It says this. So Abram left Egypt and traveled north into the Negev, which is back into the Canaan area. And along with his wife and Lot and all they owned, verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. From the Negev, they continued traveling by stages toward Bethel. They pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where they had camped before. This was the same place Abram had built the altar and there he worshiped the Lord again. As I've been sitting with this text and story and thinking through the next several weeks that we have with Abram's story, two major themes have just been coming to light. Things that I've been seeing again and again that just consistently out of Abram's life. And the first is this. It's the developing faith of a man. You see, Abram's faith from start to finish as it develops in his reliance on God grows and grows and reliance on self grows less and less. And two, you see a revealing God. To me, when I look at the story of Abram, I see God revealing himself again and again and again, trying to teach Abram who he is. This is who I am, Abram. This is who I am, Abram. And again and again, in a trial, in a situation, in a frustrating time, in conversation, in prayer, God's revealing himself and making himself personable to Abram. And this is part of God's character. He does not shut the door to you. Even when you choose self, and even when you've made terrible decisions, and you've sinned and you've distanced yourself from God, he does not shut the door of worship on you. It says that they returned to the place, this, this was the same place where Abram had built the altar, and there he worshiped the Lord again. Abram returned. So what happens when the faithful fail? Abram messes up makes terrible decisions. He hurts his wife. Can you imagine that camel ride home as he's sitting the wife, there and like saying, did you just sell me to Pharaoh? Makes terrible decisions. But he worships the Lord again. 
he picks up communion with God where he had left it in the promised land. And God meets him there. It's like he had never left. He was just waiting for Abram to start the conversation again. You know, the same door that we walk away from God is the same door that we can walk back to God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that thankful? Shouldn't we be so excited about that is that God doesn't leave us in those bad decisions. And this is the promise of James 4. We're going to end with this today. This is James 4, 4 through 10. It says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that, is, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. He gives grace generously, and the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. What is this saying? It's saying that there is an open door policy to come back to God and he will receive you with open arms. Come close to God and he will draw close to you. I would latch onto that promise and if you didn't hear anything else, hold on to that moment right there. If you've walked far from God, if you haven't walked that far from God and you just made a bad decision, you did something you knew was wrong this week, today, you have open access right back to Jesus, just like the first time you did. Draw close to him, and he'll draw close to you. I believe that Abram humbled himself and learned from the lessons that he learned in Egypt. Because his story doesn't just end in chapter 13. It goes on for like 10 or 12 more chapters. And you see a faith develop and grow, and you see God become more real. You see his character develop more and more and more. The issue, the struggle with our church, capital C, across the world right now, is that we want to maintain a friendship with the normal in the world. We want to take circumstances and we want to take hard things that are hard to understand, hard truths, and apply them to the Bible instead of the Bible applying truth to our lives. Our job is not to try to change God and to tame him and to make him palatable, but for us to learn who he is and let his truth shape our lives. And that happens by returning and worshiping again. That happens with communion and worship and building your altar and spending time with him and learning his character. And the promise here is that he will lift you up in honor, is that your failure won't define you, is that God will actually honor you. If you're humble, you come back and approach him and learn and receive from him.